The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we come to you as people beneath your hand, believers, most of us here, I'm sure, and unbelievers, all of us here, I'm sure. We come to you as people beneath your hand, looking to you, a God of grace and love who has drawn near to us. We look to you for help. In a hundred situations, we look to you and say, please, reach out and intervene and change our worlds. And we believe that you can and will, and yet we don't. We would pray, and we would draw near, and we would bow beneath your will, but our hearts are hard and are resistant and are clouded and confused and afraid. So, Lord, we ask you, we who are believers, we ask you to help us with our unbelief and to prepare our hearts for your intervention and work. As we turn to your word this morning, which you have graciously given us, would you speak through it, and would you do a preparing work in us and, and perhaps even uh, a reorienting of us, uh, maybe a softening, maybe a, a humbling, maybe a, a convicting, perhaps, perhaps even a rebuking, but would you do a, a preparing work in us? Lord, you are a good God. We say thank you. We want to be people who declare your praises, not just with our lips, but with our lives, and we want to do that in, in every avenue of life in which we walk. We, we, your people, are different. We are changed. We have, as was prayed earlier, we have a desire planted in us for, for your kingdom and for you, and we struggle often. And so would you please work now and draw near and change us that you would be honored, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. We would bow before it and not murmur against it. We would declare it with word and with deed. So Lord, we look to you as people beneath your hand and say thank you for being God to us and thank you for the work that you have done and will do. And now we pray, make your word clear. Build your church. Build your church, Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us. And we pray now, draw our attention to your word and change us with it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Or, as we might call it, Book one of the Acts of Jesus, or the record of what God accomplished in Christ, part one. Something like that. I use those potential alternative names to, to illustrate something that, to alert us to the fact that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the Acts, that they are a unit, they belong together. 
Luke is part one and Acts is part two, but they are, they are a, a singularity. Both books written by the same author, written to the same man, and together both share a similar purpose. Luke gives us insight into his purpose in verses 1 to 4 of the Gospel, as we'll read here shortly. He's writing as an historian, as an educated man. Luke was educated as a medical doctor. He's a Gentile. He's a ministry partner with the Apostle Paul. And as Acts reveals, he even traveled with Paul for some of his ministry journeys. And so he was an eyewitness about some of, to some of the things that he writes about, particularly in Acts. But there are other eyewitnesses and other accounts, Paul himself being a chief one, from which Luke draws to write down the bulk of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. He's acting as an historian when he writes them down, gathering records, putting them together, and he says in verse 3, writing down an orderly account of what has been accomplished. That's verse 1. Not just what happened, but what has been accomplished by God. Something was done. Specifically, God the Father acting in God the Son, acting in his person and acting in what Jesus did. God the Father acting in God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Much has been accomplished, says Luke. Let me tell you about it in an orderly way. And Luke starts by telling us in the Gospel about that and then continues by telling us in the book of Acts about that. So they, there's a continuity here. But we're only going to be focusing on what he says in Luke. If you, for some reason or other, want to look at Acts, that's on the website, I think. And we talked about that some years back. I preached through that book. But we're going to be focusing on Luke. A few clues about where we are time-wise when we come to Luke. The book of Acts, again, the unit, the book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul, alive and well, preaching under house arrest in Rome. And we know that Paul was martyred by Rome in the mid-60s, probably about 65 A.D. So it seems that when Acts ends, Paul's still alive. It would be odd to write like that if everybody knows he's already been martyred. Furthermore, we know that the city of Jerusalem and the temple there was destroyed by Rome in 70 A.D., an event predicted in both Acts and Luke, but not destroyed but not described, not mentioned. And it would seem odd that if something so important and predicted had already happened, there would have been mention of that in Acts and Luke. So what we have here in the Gospel of Luke is something written in the early to mid-60s A.D., which is important because that means Jesus was crucified and raised only 30 years before this. So there are plenty of people alive and well who saw all of that who are still alive and well at the time Luke wrote. That's important because, as he says in verses 3 and 4, he's trying to write an orderly account for this man, Theophilus, who is a Gentile, we can tell from his name, and probably a government official because of how Luke addresses him, most excellent. Theophilus is a, a typical way of addressing a government official. He's a Gentile, probably a government official, and in some way or another has been drawn near to the Christian message. He has been taught some things, not just heard them through the grapevine, but has received teaching. Probably means he's become a Christian, though it's not certain. But for some reason or other, now he's doubting. He's wondering about it. And we could guess that's maybe because of the persecution that's broken out in the Roman Empire against Christianity. The fact that he's a Gentile and he's looking at the Jewish Messiah that's been largely rejected by Judaism. So what's going on? He's wondering, he's questioning for some reason. And Luke is writing 
to give him certainty concerning these things while there are plenty of people alive who would know otherwise if Luke twisted the facts. If Luke writes a false or shifty history, it's not going to encourage and solidify Theophilus. It's going to undermine his whole purpose. He has to play it straight on the facts, and he does. He acts as an historian, writing down things that plenty of people know. He even records in the Gospel of Acts, Paul on trial several times says to courts, says to kings and to governors, you know what I'm talking about. It has not happened in a corner. It's been public. You know these things. These are known events. I'm going through this because sometimes we read these things and we think, oh, that's a religious document. It's not. It's a history document. It's a history book we're reading. These things happened. And Luke has to write them down accurately. Because there are plenty of hostile people out there who are double-checking constantly. Who want to refute what he says. Who want to, to say, liar. Who want to call him on it. But he writes it down straight. He's an historian must be clear about that, even while we carefully say we must acknowledge that he has an opinion about these facts as to what they mean, and he argues for it. There's no such thing as unbiased history. There's no such thing as unbiased history. And Luke is a historian, an historian, but he's not an unbiased historian. What we're going to read in the Gospel of Luke and talk about over the next while are facts presented as all facts are, presented with an argument, with a perspective. Luke thinks he knows what these things mean and wants to persuade you of them. He wants to persuade Theophilus. This stuff happened, and it means, namely, these records reveal that the one true living God has accomplished something. Long-promised, long-awaited, God in Christ has accomplished the promised salvation of the people of God. That's what Luke shows us and encourages us by faith to embrace with certainty. So we're going to see over the next months. Let's begin it by reading the Gospel of Luke starting in chapter 1, verse 1, down through verse 25. That's our passage for today, an introductory, preliminary passage. I'll read that. I'll pass back through it to make a couple of the details, a few of the details clear so we can understand what's going on. And then I'll make three observations from this passage as we begin the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, 
And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the people, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. From Luke 1. Well, verse 5 locates us in, in time and in place. Geographically, we are in Judea and about to be in Jerusalem, in the temple, even in the holy place. So we've got concentric circles here. Judea is the land, then you get the city Jerusalem, and then the temple, the area of the temple would have had courts, outer courts, inner courts, and then the building itself, which would have had two parts, a holy place where Zechariah is about to be, and then a most holy place where no one can go. High priest, once a year only, can enter into the most holy place, which is where the presence of God is. But Zechariah is going to come right next to that, as close as anyone can get to the presence of God in the temple, in the courts, in the city, in the land. That's where we're located physically and ethnically. We're in the family of Levi and the priest's family, even the family of Aaron. The high priest's family is mentioned there. Zechariah and Elizabeth are older beyond childbearing years, and they are righteous. Verse 6 makes that clear to us. An important point, these two walk with God. Their behavior is careful to follow God. It doesn't mean they are sinless, but it means that when they sin, they attend carefully to the sacrifices to remove God's blame off of them. So they are blameless before him. And yet still, verse 7, she doesn't have any children. She's barren. 
making the connection here. She's barren, but that's not because of her sin. God's got some other reason for that, as we'll see. So Zechariah comes to the temple to perform his scheduled service. He would have been assigned to go to work in Jerusalem twice a year on a rotating basis. All the priests would go up twice a year to do something. But the event that we read about, him being able to offer the incense at the altar of incense in the holy place, was so precious, so special, so rare, that if you were randomly chosen by lot, your name was, so to speak, taken out of the hat. You could only do that once in your life. Zechariah, randomly, so to speak, we know that God controls the casting of all lots, so it's not random. Again, God's got a plan for this. But Zechariah has a once-in-a-lifetime experience here. He gets to go not just into the temple to perform some services, but to go to the altar of incense and offer up incense. Incense, mentioned three times there for emphasis. Offering up incense, which is the, the prayers of the people rising up to God, to heaven, so to speak. Offered up to the nostrils of God, a pleasing aroma, petition and praise to him. He gets the chance to do that for once in his life. That altar stood right before the, you could reach out and touch the curtain that separated man from God on the other side. He's going to walk right up to that and offer the prayers of the nation. He comes to do that, and we're told about that, that threefold repetition. And in the middle, verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Got a lot of praying going on right there in the middle of this, of this section. And an angel appears to him on the favored right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah is afraid. No kidding. He's afraid. And the angel calms him and then tells him the joyful news. This, this is a joyful thing. It's a, it's a thing for his family rejoicing and for the nation rejoicing, both. He's going to have a son, and this son's going to be special, particular, great before the Lord. He will go before the Lord in power like Elijah, an allusion, several allusions here in 15, 16, 17, to Old Testament passages and concepts, particularly the book of Malachi is mentioned there. He's going to go before him in the power before the Lord in the power of Elijah. What Zechariah hears there is you're going to have a son who is going to be the one mentioned in Malachi who would be the beginning of the Lord's great work of restoring the people. That's what he hears. And then, uncertain about it, he doubts and is struck mute for a time. But he's able to communicate something of what happened to the crowd, and they, they know something happened. And he goes home, and his wife conceives. That's the passage. Luke 1, 1 to 25. I'm going to make three observations from the passage. Here's the first one. In his time, and in his way, God responded to the cry for help. Observe that here. We see that in his time and in his way, God responded to the cry for help and can be trusted to be that same kind of God today. In his time and in his way, God responded to the cry. 
This passage presents to us two very clear needs. We open up the book, we come down to verse 7, and we find the first need, an obvious one. Here's a woman who is barren and has no children. An obvious problem, if, if you want to have children and you don't, that's, that's a clear issue, one that some of us likely are, are familiar with. You, you can sense that, you feel it, perhaps even in your own life, the, the pain of that. But what we don't sense in our modern world, even while we know what it's like to, to experience the pain and, and the disappointment and the ongoing troubling burden of, of wanting children but not having them, we, we know what that's like in our world, but we don't immediately know what it was like back in their world. Very different back then. If we move cultures from now back to then, children are more than just desirable, they are necessary. In a number of different ways, children in in older cultures like that are life. They are power, they are security, they are resources that will protect you through life and provide for you in old age. And in Israel in particular, children and especially sons are the way that a name, a, a lineage, a heritage is continued on, remaining in connection to the God of promise, even literally in connection to the land given as an inheritance. Very important that you have children to continue on your line. And we get a little bit of lineage here, and then we get, but that lineage is about to end because there's no one to carry it on. Children now are are precious and, and desirable to us, but back then they were necessary, valued. And they don't have any. They're empty. We get a feel for what that would have been like when you read her, her statement in verse 25. The Lord has taken away my reproach from among the people. She stood her whole life under reproach, under some sort of judging condemnation from others who have wondered, perhaps in the back of their minds, perhaps out loud, what has she done that the Lord has withheld from her? This necessity Now, we know nothing. It's not about that. But she's experienced that. It's a problem for her. And God's going to step in and answer that. But that's not the main problem. This need, this problem of hers, it it exists, this problem of, of this little family exists for the sake of pointing us towards the larger problem, the larger issue here. God's doing something, as I said. He's lining up some parallels for us to think about. Maybe if you were here a number of years back, you read through this and you remember, that kind of sounds like something. You remember another book that began with a barren woman. Another book that began with a barren, righteous couple. Righteous as they go up constantly to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and she cries out wanting a son and God graciously steps in and meets the need of this barren woman, this fruitless woman's life, meets it with a son who will be the one who points the way to the king. Remember that book? That's Samuel. You can't read this and and not think of Samuel, Samuel, Hannah and Samuel and the coming Davidic king. 
there's a parallel being lined up for us here. God has created a situation in, in this couple's life, not because of their sin, but because he's going to use them to, to create a, a parallel that he's going to step in and answer in a way that shows clearly there is no normal, ordinary course of human life existence answer. He's going to create a parallel that he answers to show another parallel need that he's going to answer. He wants to make us think. We read of in Samuel, coming out of the period of hundreds of years of the judges, of of decline and of wickedness, and the people laboring under the burden of the mercies, if you will, of foreign powers that are cruel and of wicked leaders. Remember Eli and his sons. And here now you have, after hundreds of years of silence, God has not spoken for 400 years up to this point, and they're at the mercy of foreign Rome, at the mercy of foreign powers, and beneath wicked leaders, Herod is not a good guy, as we'll see. They're beneath the burden of, of leaders that have gone astray, that are Jews that have gone astray, of Gentiles who are evil, and they cry out to God, barren is the people without fruit and without life, like the couple. We don't get right away that the couple's been crying out to God. Not till the angel answers, I've heard your prayer, Zechariah. Oh, he's been praying. But there's an emphasis on prayer Right in the middle of this passage, the incense and the incense and the incense and the multitude of people praying outside, crying out, as it were, God, send the one that we need. Would you intervene? Would you respond? Would you help? Now, they probably don't have that quite right in their minds, which is why he responds as he does. That's the second point. But they are aware of a need, that seeking of God You must come. We can't solve this ourselves. Our barrenness, our fruitlessness, our lifelessness needs you. God hears that, and in his time and in his way, he responds. It took a while. Really, it took past a while. Any hope that Zechariah and Elizabeth had, I'm I'm sure they shelved that sometime past. And Israel's been crying out, not just for 400 years, but for a thousand years since David died. For one like David, but actually one better than David. We need a king. Like David, but better for a thousand years. And God, in his time and in his way, heard and answered He did respond to the cry. He's still that kind of God. Now, this is preliminary. So we don't have any idea yet of what the answer is. We don't have any idea the the shape, the, the nature of the answer. All we know is that he heard, he arose, and said yes. Clearly, we are meant to see, modeled in this, a people who cry out, faithfully depending, Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithfully walking with God, even all of the years through his no, not yet, no, not yet, no, not yet. They keep walking with him. They don't, they don't, they don't say, well, forget it then. They keep walking with him, keep hoping, 
And he does answer. That's, that's the kind of God that he is. So here we are in a preliminary, a preparatory passage, and all that we have so far is crying out in the answer. Don't know what it is yet, but an answer. A gracious answer. One that draws our attention. It clearly shows he's going to answer in a way that's God, not us. Well, what is it? It moves us on towards the second point. Here's the second observation. God responded to the cry for help with a preparatory word about repentance. God responded to the cry for help with a preparatory word about repentance. Have you ever read a gospel, maybe particularly this one, and wondered why the story about what God accomplished in Jesus begins with somebody else's birth? You ever wondered about that? The, the cry going up for not just 400 years, but for 1,000 years is, Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Lord, would you come? Would you come to us in our captivity? Would you send Messiah? Would you send the King, the Savior, the Deliverer? Send him. And God says, Okay, let me introduce you to John the Baptist. See the Messiah? Everybody thinks, everybody asks, Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not then why are we talking to you? I said, please send us the Savior. And you said, okay, here's John. This is so common. We, we know the story. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Why? Because of what the people need in preparation for what they requested. The angel says to Zechariah, this is verses 13, 15 and following, you'll have a son, he will be great before the Lord, dedicated to him, you know, not drinking, set aside to him, filled with the Spirit, ministering in power, and here's what he'll do. John will not, not in this account, John will not serve as a signpost as a pointer to the Messiah. Now, certainly he does. We'll, we can read about it later. You can read about it in other Gospels. John clearly serves as a, as a pointer. This is the one of whom I spoke. This is the one that I saw the Spirit come down and rest upon. This is the one I was talking about. This is the Lamb of God. Behold him. He does clearly work like that, but not here. What the angel tells John's father, John's going to be about... Is something different. He makes a point in 16 and 17. John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. First use of the idea of turning. He will turn them. Verse 17, again referring to the book of Malachi. And if you were to read the whole book of Malachi, you would realize God has an issue with Israel, particularly as leaders. And what Malachi is about is how he's going to fix that, how he's going to turn them. He's going to turn many people, and then quoting Malachi, 
He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He will turn the disobedient back to the wisdom of the just. It's implied there. The third mention of the word turn implied the third time. He will turn people towards God. He will make ready a people. He will create a prepared people. That's where the verse ends. People are crying out for God to come, but they're not ready for God to come. They must be prepared, made ready first by a great turning work. Or if you put in a more common word for us, word for turn, repent. A repentant people. John's ministry, highlighted here, certainly he serves as a signpost to identify the Messiah, but John's ministry in particular is to bring up before the people, you want, you want Messiah, you want Savior, you want the King, indeed, let's talk about repentance first. I'm going to send him, but first I'm going to send one before him who's going to bring up the issue before all of the people, the people crying out for him, going to bring up before all the people the issue of repentance, which is necessarily going to involve a discussion about sin. That's the center of this passage. If you just look at the number of verses, it's right in the, right in the heart. It focuses everything. Here's the one that's, that's coming, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to talk about repentance and turn people lead people into repentance and prepare them to receive the one they've asked for. That's the burden of John's ministry. We cry out for, we are aware of our own personal needs, whatever those may be. We, we, we sense, we feel our barrenness, our need for, for a profitable life, a need for a fruitful life, a blessed life in countless areas. And we cry out for, we, we look to God and we ask for, Lord, would you come? Would you intervene? Would you move? Would you act? Would you reach out your arm and deliver and save me from despair and from confusion and from affliction and from the enemy all around, whatever form that may be? intervene and help that cries readily on our lips and God graciously says I have heard the cry he stands up and he says yes let's talk about your sin my sin no, I mean their sin your sin I heard the cry and I'm going to answer and we're first gonna have a conversation about your sin I am sending the one Indeed, who will bind up your wounds and carry your sorrows. But for you to be ready for him, you need to understand that the main problem in your life is you. And your sin. You're not ready for him until you've understood that and have turned from it. That's the source of barrenness in you, the source of fruitlessness, the source of lifelessness in you. It's you. And that message is not at all meant to be mean. It's hard to talk about sin and repentance without having a little bit of uh, in it. But this is not a, this is not that. This is joy to all the people. It only becomes, and notice John the Baptist in his ministry himself 
When does John the Baptist get feisty? And I mean that perhaps euphemistically. When does he get angry? When people resist and refuse and reject. We will not talk about our sin. We will not be repentant. To talk about sin and talk about repentance is to talk about the leveling out of paths and the clearing away of obstacles and the opening up of the doors of your hearts that the King of Glory may come in. It is a blessing to have those things pointed out to you. Your sin is your enemy. To have that pointed out and to have that confronted in you and and for you to be turned away from that is good to you. It's grace to you. And God in no way whatsoever means to be about that. Until you say, forget you, and then he says, well, then I have a problem. So, at the very outset here, what we have is a God who is clearly going to respond to great need in his people. I am, yes, indeed, the one you want. I'm going to send him. But first, I need to clear away the rubble so that you can receive him. So receive it as a merciful and gracious approaching of you from God. As I thought about this myself, I I thought, what what I've just said to you the last five minutes is what I went through myself this last week, is I'm thinking about my own needs and calling out to God and saying, God, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. I'm looking at trouble A, B, and C, and And then I'm studying this and I realize I haven't actually looked at my own sin in this. I haven't approached XYZ, ABC through the lens of my own sin. Part of the reason I asked Mandy to sing that song again is there are several verses in there. Lord, I I know your will is right, but I forget how it goes exactly, but, um, but I resist it. Yeah, that's sin in me. And if God were to bring me to a blessed walking with the Messiah, with the Savior, he first has to say, you know what the problem is there is here. Not that his will's not working out, but that you're not accepting of the will, resisting it. He's got to deal with my sin if he's going to lead me to a walk with the Savior that I want and that would be delightful and joyful. So his approaching of my sin is grace to me, grace to you. And so we we need to, and we will hear, now I'm not going to preach the details of what John says, that's coming up. We will hear often, as you always do in the Bible, God approaching you and your sin and calling you to repentance And how you should hear that, even now, is thank you for pointing out the problem and calling me away from it. We have God who says, I hear the cry and I will respond with the preparatory word about a call to repentance. And thirdly then, We should heed this good news. 
we should heed the good news that we hear from God. This is the response that kind of connects the first two points to how we should hear it and respond. We should, we should hear it and we should heed it. Zechariah was praying and he's seeing something amazing that happens in the temple there. He, he's praying, we find out, for his own situation, and he's offering up the prayers of the nation at the same time that God then steps up with his angel and says, here's the answer. It all happens in a way that should have made clear beyond all doubt, this is God, and yet Zechariah doubted. Verse 19, the angel identifies himself and says that he had brought good news behind our word for gospel. He had brought good news when he talked about God's joyful sending of, of John and God's joyful moving of beginning his saving work. I brought good news. However, you didn't believe it. Theophilus had it explained to him, and Luke's trying to make this point with Theophilus. What this is, is God speaking to be believed, not like Zechariah did when he heard it and didn't believe. That tension right there was laid before us here in the third point. God has spoken in a way that should be beyond all doubt and all question. Here's a righteous couple who walk with the Lord, while for once in his life he's standing in the presence of God. Not, he has not gone off by himself somewhere in a cave or in a forest on a mountaintop. He is in the temple at the altar of prayer before the curtain. And an angel appears to him. And then his barren wife gets pregnant. People of God, this is God's word. He has spoken. It is true. You need to hear it and receive it and heed it and respond to it believing. The angel makes the point with Zechariah here. The problem was, you did not, this is in the middle of verse 20, because you did not believe my words. Discipline comes on him. Now, in, in the ranking of affliction, this is not serious. It's not permanent, it's not painful. But it's, it's a discipline. It's a shot across the bow to him and to us who would read. This is God's word to us about his work to save and to deliver, which he begins by speaking to us about sin and repentance. Hear it. Believe it. Heed it. Now, right about here, you, you don't know what all of it is yet. It hasn't, hasn't happened yet. That's the coming weeks and coming months. 
But what this is doing at the very beginning of this book is drawing our attention here, like I've tried to do just now, drawing our attention here to a couple of basic facts and said, right at the beginning, there's a posture that we must adopt. A posture of of hopeful expectation, of humble repentance, and faith. Expectation, humility, faith, hope, a a turning, a, a repentance, belief. That kind of posture is what has to cover us as we embark on the Gospel of Luke. There's a lot more to come, but you'll miss it if you don't have this posture. God has responded to the cry for help. He responds with a call to repentance, and we must heed that. Heed it in hope, heed it in humble repentance, and in faith. Let me pray. Lord, you begin to speak to us. You begin in a way that should lift up our eyes a little bit amidst our trouble. There's there's hope in what you're doing and what's coming. You are at work. And you begin to speak to us in a way that perhaps will confront us with our our own sin. The need to turn from the path that we are walking to you in in a humble submission. A receptive, open-handed, open-hearted approach to you to receive the help that you would give. And you begin to speak by pointing out to us that we must believe. We cannot just hear it, but we have to believe. So Lord, I pray that what you would do in us as as a people here as we begin this gospel, and, and really we haven't heard yet what the gospel is, what it's about, but as we begin it, Lord, would you do a work in people today and perhaps this week that gives them hope, and that humbles them and calls them to faith. Lord, help us, please. And I I pray that over this this whole time in Luke, that you would show us Christ. Show us what you've done in him. In a a way that moves us, that, that alarms us with your goodness, and that reassures us with confidence. Would you do that, Lord, in in coming months? And right now, would you prepare us to receive that? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 
943-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.